Thank you for downloading this edition of Against the Odds. To find out more and to request to be a guest in an upcoming episode, visit the Against the Odds page of philip-anderson.co.uk. Welcome to Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast profiling the lives of individuals who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. A very warm welcome to this, the first in a two-part podcast, Taking Steps. In this series... Life after miscarriage. There's a lot of reasons why it didn't happen. There are various medical issues going on. I have polycystic ovary syndrome and I have endometriosis. Something thought to affect a quarter of a million pregnancies in the UK alone every year. And a topic which I'll be exploring with my guest in part two. Yes, it is possible for me to conceive, but there are issues which mean that you know, it would be difficult to go full term. And even if I did, there's things to consider after that. The personal accounts of which are also covered in the book, Taking Steps, by Helen Sims, the writer and disability activist, and my guest on Against the Odds. Taking Steps is everything that's me in book form. It stands for positivity and changing things around. It stands for turning bad things to good things. And cutting across poetry. You won't win this time. You can't hurt me. Unlike before, I'm strong now. See? Prose. Festive my arse, Rudolph muttered and began to munch his hay. Just then, Mrs. Claus appeared in the doorway. Norm wandered over to her and draped his arm around her shoulders. Aye, aye. What's going on here then? And activism. I feel worthless every time the government spouts more scrounger rhetoric and lies to people. I am not a scrounger. I'm Helen. And Helen Sims joins me now. Helen, a very warm welcome. Someone I know who takes a great deal of pride in one's hair, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) Yes. Yeah? Yeah, apparently my hair is the thing that stands out most. It's long and it's kind of mousy brown, although in the sun it kind of changes colour and looks more like a red colour. Are you the sort who spends hours in the morning then over the hair? No, no. That said, I'm not, I'm not at all vain. I don't, I don't wear makeup and I don't, I brush my hair, but that's about, (laughs) about all. (laughs) So you're not that conscious about physical appearance? No. No. But if you ask me what I'm proud of in terms of my my physical characteristics it would be my hair i think i think the fact that you can do lots of different things with it um, especially if it's long you can put it up set it down curl it if you want to you can you can use it to express yourself can't you do you with your long hair no i usually just leave it down that there is the possibility of doing that if i chose to i mean there have been times when i've when i've worn it up or i've got i have a hairdresser friend who says that I should be a hair model and sometimes he's like to sort of style it in different ways and And yet it didn't all start out like that, did it? Because there was a time when you were very young, going back to when you were a baby, even when you had all your hair shaved off. Yes, because because I was premature. I was born about three months early. I was very very tiny and I was in an incubator. 
and they had to feed me through a through a tube, I think, and that went through my head. If I if I'm correct, an interesting topic we can return to in a moment. But by my reckoning, then you've got your fortieth coming up. Technically, I'm not forty till next year, though, am I? <laughs> that depends which way you look at it. <laughs> yes, but we're being technical here, and although my birthday is November, it's not really. <laughs> I don't know. Well, provided a baby runs its course, it's nine months old by the time it's born. That's true. I think I should have an official birthday and a, and and an unofficial birthday. Uh, like you could do it. The Queen does. The yeah. Queen does it. Indeed. If it's good enough for the Queen, and I should have it too. It's like in Alice in Wonderland. A very very happy unbirthday to you with the Mad Hatter's tea party. All right, let's throw it open to the audience. Let's see what our listeners think. Do you reckon Helen's right? We should have an official and an unofficial birthday. <laughs> Let us know. Info at againsttheoddspodcast.com. I, th- I think everybody should have, have their actual official birthday and then they should choose another day of the year that they have their unofficial birthday or whatever they want to call it, where they celebrate themselves too. I think it's a very good idea. So what have you got planned for your 40th? Because of the pandemic, actually, I haven't thought about it too much um, yet because we don't know what the situation would be. My 30th, we went down to the local pub with um, my sister was there and my fr- my best friend was there with her boyfriend and, and her sister and a couple of other people. And we, we just had a, a drink and we spent the night just, well, drinking. But my mum actually said to me a couple of days ago that she might have, might have a different idea in that she has found this costume company that, that might do dress-up parties. <laughs> so have you decided what you're going as? I might go as something from the 1960s, you know, with the short skirts and the, mm. the f- tiny flowered blouses or the bright colours, or... I might go as Captain Jane Ray from Star Trek Voyager, because <laughs> she's my fictional role model. I must confess I didn't grow up on any of those. It was just William Jennings and the Famous Five back in my day. <laughs> nope. Did you do flares? No, I didn't do flares, and I didn't do short skirts either. <laughs> uh, short trousers as a boy at school, but I certainly didn't do short skirts, that's for certain. <laughs> But no, I came to fashion later in life rather than early, and I'm not a massive fan of fashion, although I do have a number of Ralph Lauren tops in my wardrobe, along with various other designer labels, and was known to be a fan of Armani back in the day. But, segueing as they say, you're listening to Against the Odds, with me, Philip Anderson, and my guest, Helen Sims, the writer and disability activist. Helen, you mentioned to me earlier you were born three months early, and so too was my first guest on Against the Odds, as it happens. So I suppose I'll ask you a similar sort of question. What did that mean for you? What was the result of your premature birth? There was an issue with the heart monitor. The heart monitor, which was connected to me to tell the doctors and nurses whether I was breathing or not. Um, that didn't work. It malfunctioned and it didn't go off. It meant I stopped breathing and it didn't tell people that I'd stopped breathing. And if, if a nurse hadn't been passing by when she was, mm. um, I, I probably wouldn't be here. 
So how much oxygen were you starved of on that occasion? I was I was starved of enough oxygen to result in, in the cerebral palsy. But that, that said, because I was so premature, there is an argument to say that I probably, or I might, have had cerebral palsy anyway. But I personally don't believe that. I think that the incident with the heart monitor was the cause of it because before that there was no evidence that there was anything wrong with me. I was small and I and, and, I, and I was at risk as a result of my size and obviously I, I was very ill but in terms of physical disability there was no evidence of that being the case at the beginning. Um, there was also an incident with me needing a blood transfusion Right. So whether that was as a result of what happened with the heart monitor or whether that happened before, I don't know. Well, that's very interesting. So what was the extent of your cerebral palsy at the time of diagnosis, or at least of it being recognised? It started out as me not being able to walk or stand at all. That changed. Um, I I learned to walk quite early, but it wasn't a proper sort of walking. It was, I used to walk with my knees kind of turned in, which obviously that's going to have an effect on bones and things like that. Um, that then deteriorated to the point of it, it was very much pain. And obviously I wasn't very steady and I was having physio and things like that at that time. And after that, when I was 14, I deteriorated to the point where they decided needed to do the surgery then. I was deteriorating all the time because of weight gain and bone scrubbing and that type of thing. You know, the body changes and obviously it changed later with puberty. So that became a factor. Hmm. And how prepared do you reckon your parents were for your early arrival and later your cerebral palsy? I don't think they were very prepared because I was early. I think my mum said maybe she was cleaning the windows when I decided to start arriving earlier than what I should do. And I, I don't think they were prepared for what happened afterwards as there aren't many parents who would be really. Um, but I think that they did their best given the things that were in place then and the slightly less knowledge about that type of thing then than there is now. But there's no scans for cerebral palsy, is there? As far as I know, there isn't for cerebral palsy. I remember my mum telling me this story of one day she was walking down the road with me. She was either holding me or holding my hand, I think. And she, she crossed the road with me. And this woman, I think she was, she was a nurse in the unit when I was born. Around the area, she'd obviously seen my mum holding my hand. And I think my mum was singing to me or talking to me or something. And this woman had, had thought the little girl would be all right because she told my mum at a later date that this happened. Yeah, I mean, my mum always talked with me. She we, we made gingerbread together. We played with me. She read me stories. And yeah. And as far as you're aware, she was never embarrassed about you at all? I don't think so, no. And what about your spine? Do you have anything like scoliosis? I think I do. Although it's not been formally diagnosed, but there is certainly a problem. Because of my posture, I do tend to lean forward and I do tend to lean towards the side. Mm. 
slightly in some circumstances I think that there is an issue and certainly when I do stand up and I hold on to something my back hurts most first my knees happen to hurt very quickly but my my back will hurt before my knees do and it's the bottom of my back which suggests that there's a problem with the spine there or it could just be strain it's certainly impacted on my neck and as the neck is connected to the spine and the spine bones connected to the I think it does were there any attempts at corrective surgery at the time I know we're going to be looking at your major operations you had when you were 14 in a moment, but in terms of the issues you've just described for us, were there any steps taken? I had physio when I when I started special school. It was attached to a physio unit which was in turn attached to the hospital. So I had I had physio twice a week then, which which focused on posture and muscle strength and that type of thing, getting me to sit up and, and and strengthen the muscles in my legs and things like that. And I had some occupational therapy to help me learn to fold things up and things like that. And then obviously there was the surgery at age 14, which yeah. was the big thing. So there were some attempts at least. And as I've said, we're going to be discussing your uh, major operations when you were 14 in a moment. But in terms of your own disability. When did you become aware you were different? At what age in your life did it all become apparent to you? I think I was always aware that I was different, but I think it really kicked in around about the age of eight. I couldn't do the things that some children were doing. That said, I did go out in the garden and play with my sister and you know, with the, the neighbourhood children would come in and, and, and we'd make mud pies and we had a little den in the garden and that type of thing. You know, there were things I couldn't do that, that she could and other people could. All right, thank you. If you'd like to hold a thought, we'll be back in a moment when we'll be exploring your operations in more detail. She's Helen Sims. I'm Philip Anderson. If you have a story of your own to share, or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk. Hello, everybody. My name is Aaron Richmond, and I am the host of the Aaron's Opinion podcast, the podcast for blind people, where we speak about critical issues in the blindness community from all over the world. My podcast is a weekly podcast heard every Thursday at 1200 New York. You can listen to my podcast anywhere you would get a podcast or on Life Improvement Radio. Thanks so much. Help one person today. Help a million people tomorrow. This is Against the Odds with Philip Anderson. Hope is a tug of war. You lose if you let go. Hope, an endless flame, only extinguished if you blow. Hope, a voice that says you can when you feel you can't, that whispers you'll be okay in the moments when you aren't. And so, let hope be the tiniest of sparks that keeps you together when you're falling apart.
I was quite young when my parents decided to send me up to Oswald Street for operations to do with my cerebral palsy to try and improve my mobility. The tests and things that they were doing must have started around about the age of eight or nine. They had me up yearly to do things, uh, look at the way I walked and obviously monitor the changes. It just basically progressed until the age of 14 where they decided they needed to do it before the puberty and things set in. The place where I had the surgery was the best in the country for the procedures that I needed. The local hospital had offered to do it, but they didn't have the same experience. So my parents decided it was better to send me to Oswald Street. The surgery itself, there were four different operations. The first operation was to do with my hip because my hip joint was slightly out of line and it meant that my legs turned in. Um, the idea with that was to reset the bone in my hip. They broke the hip and reset it. The left side has a plate in it, which is still there to this day, which stabilizes the joint. The next operation happened a couple of weeks after that, and that was to do with cutting the muscles in my legs. My posture was better and I could stand up straighter. So I had some cuts on my knees and my ankle and my inner thighs. But there were problems to do with that because what happened after the second operation was the drain that was in my hip actually got accidentally sewn into my foot. So they had to take me down at two o'clock in the morning to remove that. That was an unexpected operation and that was quite painful. And, and then the last one was when they, dis they discovered that I needed some muscle changes in my inner thigh as well. So they had to do another operation to do with that. I was on a lot of drugs. I think I was on morphine for a fair amount of time and I was in and out of consciousness. My mum and stepdad were there for that part. Yeah, it was very hard and it's very, very painful. A daunting prospect with four operations ahead in the space of four weeks, involving complicated procedures with complicated outcomes. Begs the question, how does one prepare themselves mentally for such an undertaking? for one so young. I had been doing quite well for a while and then my knee started to hurt because of wear and tear. I was walking slightly forward with my knees kind of turning part way and obviously my hip was turning my leg in a little bit. And then obviously when the knee started to go, the hip started to go as well. So by the time I was ready for surgery, I was mostly in a wheelchair all day at school by that time. And the pain was getting quite bad. And they decided to try and push the operation forward. And that's what they did. So I had about a month 
in the end to get used to the idea that I was going to go into hospital for X amount of months. So it didn't give me a lot of time to mentally prepare for it. What would you say were your primary concerns and fears at that time? I thought things through quite a lot, but there were elements of me feeling quite pressured into having the surgery when I initially wasn't very comfortable with the idea. I was frightened of being in worse pain than I was already. Um, and I was frightened of it ending up worse than it did. There was also this other side of me, which was really hoping for a miracle cure. I wanted to be able to wake up and everything be okay again, but it didn't turn out that way. And presumably the pros and cons of the operation were also a factor. How much did you know about those at that point? I don't think I knew anything about the failure and success rate of the operation at that time. And, and that was definitely something which was preying on my mind. I don't remember them having a conversation with me about it. And I think that that, that was obviously an element of, of the fear that came into it, I think. And not surprising. I mean, we you were 14 at the time. So what faced with the prospect of four operations in the space of four to six weeks for someone so young can't have been easy for you. I mean, not surprising your anxiety levels were riding high at that point. The day I had to leave school before I went in for surgery, my friends had a surprise party for me. A load of teachers were there and, and my friends and they bought me presents and things like that and a really big notebook for me to write in and you know that was that was great and that kind of sugared the pill a bit. We had a consultation with the orthopaedic people first and then they took me straight down to the ward. It was quite overwhelming because there was a lot of noise coming from different areas of the ward. It was one of those open-sided wards with the wooden floors and that the loos were you know further down almost off the building itself. I was really frightened about what, what I was going to face. I remember sort of shutting down internally and, and, and not really taking it on board. I mean, the staff that were there, there was a lovely auxiliary nurse called Jean. She was the first person I met and she was lovely and she was really kind and, and she explained as, as best as they could what went on in the ward and what time meals were and that type of thing and and there was a, a girl called Jodie that I that I made friends with on that day she had had the, the same procedure as I had so I was able to talk to her she told me that she was standing up straighter than she had been when she went in there but she told me also that it was it, it was incredibly painful and she was incredibly tired but then we had a laugh and I think we played Connect Four and it kind of took my mind off things for a while. She was a really bubbly, friendly person and friendly people are what I needed at that time. And it's a shame that she had to leave so soon, but I did make a few other friends as well. And it was that friendship that helped, I think. And in terms of the operations, you had four in total. Which would you say were the most intense, the most memorable? The most intense of the operations I had at that time were probably the first and second one. The second one was worse because that was cutting the muscles. So there was a lot of spasms and cramping. 
so my body would involuntarily jump and of course the involuntary jumps would then hurt my hip. One of my distinctive memories of, of that time was waking up and I could see myself lying down and my stepdad was on one side of me. I think he was holding my hand and my mum was on the other side of me. It was like I was above my body. Everything within my field of vision was red uh, or tinted. And I could see over the wall of the ward. Obviously, it was the drugs um, and it, it was the amount of morphine I was on because at that time I would have been on the drip still. And I was in and out of consciousness. So I, I, I can't actually tell you how much was, was what happened when because the passage of time when you're on that amount of drugs gets really skewed. Actually, looking back at the first one, that was more traumatic because they had obviously broken the hip. And one of my memories from there is looking down and seeing the drain that they had put in my leg to drain the blood away coming out of me and, and seeing my own blood come out and go down this tube and disappear under the bed. And I remember being quite baffled. It's quite a weird experience seeing your own blood coming out of your body like that. After that, they obviously tried to get me standing up and they used a standing frame to try and get me back level. And I started to do exercises then. But I found that really hard and the pain was ridiculous. I can't put into words the whole amount of pain from those two operations. I wouldn't like to tell you which which was worse because it was horrific. Yet Helen was quite unprepared for what happened next. She describes in graphic detail the indignities of institutionalisation, coupled with the overwhelming feeling of isolation and loneliness. You may find certain aspects of what you're about to hear distressing. At the time I went in, there was just this fear, uh, this dread and uh, this really uncertainty of, of things. But as I went through the operations, the situation got worse and worse. I really began to struggle. There were elements of not eating, not wanting to eat. I was physically sick and I made myself physically sick from time to time because I just felt completely trapped. I felt like I had lost pieces of me that were there before. And also I didn't know how long I was going to be there for. By the time it started to affect my eating, I think I'd probably been in there about eight weeks perhaps. And I didn't know myself anymore. I was, re I was still really frightened because I didn't know what the future was going to be. And my parents had full-time jobs so they weren't able to be with me during the week. They came up every weekend. But at that time, I was so depressed and I was so absolutely exhausted. I felt really resentful that they could leave me there on a Sunday night and go back to their lives. And I felt angry that they weren't there for me or it felt like they weren't there for me. But they phoned me every night when they were at home. 
but but I was horrible to them and I know I was horrible to them but to be honest my hair had gone gray by this time because of the stress and I'd lost a lot of weight and it, it was just it was horrific experience and I remember one day one of the nurses took me aside and she said to me if we don't sort this out meaning my eating we're going to have to put you on a drip you know you have to make one last push to get out of here really really try hard she said to me because the harder you try the sooner you can get out of here and so I really tried extra hard with the physio but I was drained I don't know if I would describe it as a as a full-on eating disorder in comparison with what some people go through but I think that that there was an element of that the nurses would make me things separate to the meals that I would actually eat and there was there were times though when I used to ha just have black tea had pieces of toast but sometimes I I wouldn't have that even I realized then that if I if I really wanted to get well and get some control back then I had to push harder well, I certainly sense your pain and unless anyone's actually been in that situation it's hard for any of us to imagine what you must have been going through at that time and in reflecting on it all if you could identify one or two key reasons for it all what would you say were the trigger points for everything you've just described there i think it's difficult to put it down to to one specific incident i, I was so overwhelmed by everything having happened so quickly, even though I was expecting it to happen at some point, I didn't know when, you know, left school to, to go and go through this. I had lost so much of the mobility that I had had previously. I had lost my friends because they were down in Bath and I was, I was up there and I was just completely overwhelmed. And that I was, I was lonely as well because during the week, I just had the people on the ward and the nurses, you know, I didn't have anybody who were there for me. It seemed like everybody else on, on our ward had family and friends coming in every day. And I would sit by my bed reading my book and I, I didn't have any visitors during the week. I felt really forgotten about and I felt really left out of things. Emma was my best friend on the ward in the end. She, she was lovely. Her mum kind of looked after me quite well and she she sat and talked to me and but I, I didn't have any family there and that was kind of hard for me. Not that I'm blaming them because they had full-time jobs they didn't have any other choice but it, it was really hard and I think it all came together in like a snowball as you say and maybe it compounded a vulnerability that I was already feeling. It was a big thing to have to go through at the age of 14. I mean, we, we were doing exercise classes every day. On Fridays, we had hydrotherapy classes to try and strengthen the muscles up. And then in the morning of, of each weekday, we had schoolwork time between 9 and 12, I think. So there, there was all that to deal with as well. And I felt like I wasn't keeping up with things in the way that I should be because I was really distracted from things. I don't know many things about what happened at, at, at several points because my memory just doesn't go there. 
the issues with my memory were something which continued long, long after the surgery. And also I had the teenage hormones going all around my body as well and that kind of helped things. But I know that I, that I was difficult to be around, not so much for the people on the ward, but I, but I know that I, it, it was difficult for my parents and I'm, I'm really, really, really sorry about that. But I, I really, I just really felt as though I wasn't really connecting with anything. How did you find the strict hospital regime? Because back then it was fashioned on your typical boarding school with strict timetables and so on. Anybody who's been in hospital a long time will tell you that they monitor how often you empty your bowels. They monitor when you have your period. They monitor what you're eating. You have to eat and eat at a certain time. There's no freedom to do what you want to do when you do it. All that was gone. I, I was having to tell somebody that I'd been to the loo that I couldn't swim that week because I had my period. It's institutionalization, really. And I was in there for nearly four months. I came home between the first and second operation, I think, for a week. I wasn't physically able to move very far because I was still in plaster then. But it was it was lovely to be home. And I remember my stepdad having to carry me up and down the stairs and things like that at that time. And it was really good of him because he hadn't been living with us for all that long. And I remember several times that he would sit with me and read books because I'm a Torvalandine and Dean fan. I, I really remember him reading Torvalandine and Dean books to me and things like that when he was there in the early days of the surgery. Did you feel as though you were skating on thin ice? I was definitely lost, definitely. And yeah, I, I was definitely skating on thin ice, I think. I didn't know myself. And there were times I just didn't know anything. You know when somehow you get you get really, really withdrawn? And I realised that I was that. It's not that it was all bad. I mean, we did, we did have some fun at the hospital, but, you know, that was few and far between. But most of it was. It, it was a really traumatic experience. I'd like now, if I may, to reflect on the recovery process. Because you've described for us there some painful moments of your time spent in hospital and how it had impacted your mental health, the indignities you felt you'd suffered as a consequence of institutionalisation. And I wondered... What did the recovery process entail for you? Did you feel there were any cathartic moments where you felt there was hope, some light at the end of the tunnel? I got home from hospital at, would have been the end of October, which was about four days before my birthday. I came out on the Friday afternoon, I think, and I went back to school on the Monday Without my wheelchair, they decided that I needed to walk to make sure that I got the amount of exercise. My wheelchair that I had used previously was gone and, and I was wa walking with a walking frame. It was very much like being thrown in at the deep end. I didn't have time to readjust anything. And so that was overwhelming because I, I was going into lessons again and my friends had found different groups to hang out with 
and they didn't seem to have room for me. And then there was all of a sudden there was all this homework that needed doing and and I felt like I had to catch up and then I had I, I was having physio twice a week which started at four o'clock as soon as I got home from school. And also I was having problems with my memory at that time too because it was just overload. The January was probably the worst time which would have been January of 1996. That was when the depression really started to kick me really hard. I was suicidal at at a point during that and they realised that I needed to take some time out of school. And my mum was wonderful then. She took me out of school and she arranged for me to have a week at her work with her. My mum's a teacher or was a teacher. She's retired now. But at that time she was teaching special needs kids and she arranged for me to have a week at her school just chilling out and trying to regain myself. And I remember that week as being one of the best weeks ever. I was in such a state emotionally, but I just felt completely free of everything for a little while. The the school, they had this field with a donkey in it. And so I would manage to get to the donkey. The donkey was called Martina. So I I spent quite a lot of time talking to Martina. And they also had a bench to sit on. So I spent a lot of time just listening to my music and, you know, being out of everything. And it was wonderful. And I felt much better. And I began to put, put things back together a little bit then. After that, they decided that I, given the situation, I couldn't cope with all the lessons that, that I've been doing. They enabled me to drop some of the subjects which were not considered core So I was able to drop the German lesson, which was a major source of stress for me for various reasons. I dropped some of the technology subjects and I focused really on on the English and and the IT and the biology because you had to have a, a core science. I was obviously using a lot of my PE lesson time to do my exercises. So that again freed me up from some things. But the whole time was just... A real blur, really. And apart from the week you spent at your mother's school, from where you drew a lot of solace, were there any other turning points in your life at that time? I started to pull it together when they decided that I needed to see a psychiatrist to help me process things and to help me regain some of what I felt I'd lost. If you know about mental health treatment, you'll know that they they can't give you advice exactly. They can just make suggestions. My psychiatrist, Chris Ball, his name was, and he was, he was wonderful. But he helped me put things together and he made me write a list of things that I was good at and a list of things that I felt I was bad at. And he made me tear up the things that I felt I was bad at. And he made me focus on the things that I was good at. And he really helped me with the self-esteem issues because I think my self-esteem issues started around about then as well. But the depression itself never really went away. I still have bouts of depression now. 
and I had a another serious bout of depression during my A levels too, in which my uh, problems with my memory were worse. That there were some days when I couldn't remember anything of the day at school, which obviously put you put me at a disadvantage. But I was too frightened to say that I was having that type of problem because I thought that if I did, they would think I was crazy or something. There were long-term consequences for, for all of it, really. You won't win this time. You can't hurt me. Unlike before, I'm strong now, see? You think you can break me, that I won't cope. You won't win this time. I've got life and hope. You think I will be there, that I'll take the fall. You won't win this time. I won't answer your call. You think you can beat me. That's where you're wrong. You won't win this time. Been a doormat too long. You think you can ask me that I couldn't say no. You didn't win this time. I told you where to go. That brings to a close part one. The theme continues in part two. I think that, that having the rose there in in Sophie's memory was a good thing. And I think the fact that it flowers around about the time that I lost Sophie, that, that was a deliberate thing. Life After Miscarriage continues in part two. Thank you for listening to this edition of Against the Odds, the motivational podcast celebrating the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Whether you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk or visit the Against the Odds page on the philip-anderson.co.uk website for more information and to complete the guest interviewee questionnaire. This podcast is the property of Philip Francis Anderson. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited other than the following. We welcome you to download and play the podcast and share with others for personal use. Please acknowledge Against the Odds podcast as the source of the material. You may not, except with our express written permission, distribute or commercially exploit the content.